guys, it's good to be with you again. I love, 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 love the pastoral prayer here. So thanks for ministering in that way to me, uh, as well as your own congregation, Oscar. We're in Genesis 32 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and uh, turn there. Um, it's an interesting uh, passage. I, I don't know if any of you grew, grew up uh, either participating perhaps in recreational, uh, as a recreational sport, a high school sport, uh, in the sport of wrestling. I don't know how many of you have watched the spectacle of professional wrestling or enjoyed it during the, the Olympics. Um, I, I actually, uh, I grew up <clears throat> having both an interest in the spectacle of professional wrestling and uh, then I participated in it <clears throat> in my high school days as well. And I had a lot of fun with both. Of course, the spectacle is, you know, of the professional stuff. It's, it's imaginary and, and, and make-believe. But here's the point. <clears throat> we are going to see in Genesis 32 this morning, whether you have a, a history of enjoying wrestling matches or not, uh, we're going to see a wrestling match like no one's really ever seen before. Uh, first, we're going to find that in the fact of who Jacob wrestles, okay? And then secondly, and, uh, and, and perhaps most remarkably of all, uh, we're going to find in this instance, the loser is declared the winner. That's, that's not customary, right, in, in wrestling competitions. So let me tell you right up front where we are headed with this and like kind of the kind of the big idea of where this is going, and then we're going to make our way through the entire chapter. Um, <clears throat> Jacob is meeting with God, right, in this, in this wrestling match in such a way that God is stripping him of all of his self-sufficiency, of all of his self-reliance, so that he hopes in God alone in order to re-enter the promised land. Okay, so he's been gone for a while. I'll, I'll kind of summarize where we are to this point in Genesis in a second. But he's been gone and he's coming back. And in order to re-enter the promised land uh, and, and, and the covenant blessing of the Lord, God, God's got to do something. He's doing some surgery, so to speak, in Jacob's life. And the principle of what he's doing in Jacob's life, although it's very unique in the way that he does it here, um, actually applies to all of God's people. Right? It, it, it applies to all of us here. As well. So, a quick overview of where we are in the book of Genesis. I know you guys haven't been studying the book of Genesis recently, or at least I don't think that you have. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to be the father of the nation, and the covenant blessing is going to pass through his lineage Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Of course, Abraham and Sarah uh, miraculously conceive uh, their son Isaac. A little further on, Isaac grows up. Mary's Rebecca. Isaac prays that, that God would be merciful concerning Rebecca's barrenness. And in God's mercy, God grants that Isaac and Rebecca uh, would have twin sons, uh, Esau and Jacob. <clears throat> you may remember a little bit of their story. When they come forth, the twin sons are born, and Jacob is clutching at Esau's heel. Okay, uh, That's actually significant for our story. We'll come back to that. In a bit, as the boys grew, there was a time uh, later in their lives where Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Right? And he says, what good does a birthright do me if I'm starving to death? And so he trades it in haste 
So it's kind of a picture of what we all do in our sin, right? Trade what is precious for that which is temporary and passing and fleeting. Uh, And then later on, even after that, when Isaac, dad, right? When when their dad is near the end of his days, Jacob and his mother, uh, Rebecca, conspire to deceive Isaac, the dad, into giving the blessing of the firstborn son to Jacob and not Esau, right? Esau's technically the firstborn son, and yet they conspire to to wrangle, to manipulate <coughs> this blessing from Isaac, and, 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 and they, they succeed in their deception. Because of Esau's anger uh, over this, uh, he expresses an intent to kill Jacob after Isaac has after Isaac finally passes away. And so because of this, Jacob flees to, to the land of Haran to live with Rebekah's brother uh, Laban. And he's there for a period of time. While he is there, um, Laban deceives Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah, even though he had promised that Jacob could marry his youngest daughter, uh, Rachel. Jacob ends up uh, spending 14 years serving Laban in order to uh, basically, at the end of the day, marry both of the daughters. And then, it's just a, it's just a fascinating story, isn't it? That there's, this, there's a fertility rivalry, basically, between, um, <clears throat> between the sisters, between Rachel and Leah. And as a result of that, <clears throat> Jacob himself becomes the father of the sons who will head the tribes of Israel. The end of the time with Laban, uh, Jacob outsmarts Laban, and uh, the family returns to their to the land of promise, or they're about to enter the land of, of promise. Laban pursues them for a little bit. God warns Laban in a dream to turn back, which he does, and that leaves us where we are today. Jacob is on the edge of returning back into the land of promise. And yet God has yet to, got to do something very significant in Jacob's life to prepare him uh, to return. Now, just as a footnote, this is definitely not our main point. But as we've sketched the family history, right, to get to where we are today, it's a good reminder, isn't it, that God works in and through broken families. After Genesis 3, there is no other kind. But the, the Bible has a wonderful picture of what marriage and family life is meant to be. And of course, that's perfectly portrayed in the relationship between Christ and the church. But every human family outside the Garden of Eden falls short in remarkable ways. So if God is going to work through people, he's working through fallen people. If he's working through families, he's working through fallen families to redeem the brokenness. And God then is the one, of course, who gets the glory, right? <clears throat> so there's, the, there's their family dysfunction. And God's working in and through that. So that brings us to Genesis chapter 32. And uh, for the first few chunks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and, 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 and summarize some and then bring us to the point of this, this contest, this, this wrestling match, and to see what God is up to. But first, uh, let's pick it up in verses 1 and 2, and this will just kind of set the stage uh, for where we're going this morning. Verses 1 and 2, Genesis 32. <clears throat> Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. 
So, first two verses here, uh, Jacob is returning home. It's, it's 20 years since the time he deceived his father out of the blessing of the firstborn and had to flee to avoid his brother's wrath. He's coming back 20 years later. And as he does, God's angels meet him. They meet him on his return in many ways like they did on his departure, right? That's, I'm not going to go there, to, but back in chapter 28 when he's leaving, the angels meet him on his departure. They're meeting him on his return. And, and so the promise of Jacob's ladder, this, this dream, this vision that he has, is beginning to be fulfilled. But God's got to do his surgery on Jacob first. In verses 3 to 5, which I'm not going to read uh, for the sake of time, Jacob, what he, what he does in, the, in those verses is he sends some messengers ahead of himself to Esau to see what kind of reception he's going to get, right? Uh, and to see whether or not Esau might be appeased by sending a very lavish and kingly uh, gift, right? He's going he's to see, okay, if I send enough of these animals and this gift and, you know, make him a particularly wealthy man, will he, will his wrath, you know, that plus 20 years, will his wrath have been appeased? Then in verses 6 through 8, <clears throat> apparently the answer is no, right? Because the, the, the uh, Jacob's attendants come back and they tell him that they saw with Jacob uh, 400, 400 men which is the equivalent of a small army, right? That's, that's not a welcoming party. That's a small army. So, so it would appear to, to Jacob that time has not dulled Esau's anger. <clears throat> and so, and so uh, Jacob strategizes, right? He says, I'm going to divide my, my group of people into two camps so that if he attacks one, the other may escape. If he attacks the other, the one <clears throat> may escape. He's being strategic. In verses 9 through 12, let me read that to you. <clears throat> Jacob is going to confess his unworthiness and his need for God's mercy, his appeal to God's mercy. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, <clears throat> O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So this is a, right, this is a good sign in Jacob's life. He, he is humbling himself. He's reaching out for the Lord. The surgery is underway, so to speak. Uh, in the next uh, few verses, we begin to see um, more of Jacob's strategy at work. So he, um, if you look in verse 16... <clears throat> Jacob stages this gift that he's going to send to Esau. He stages it for maximum impact. So he says, down halfway through verse 16 uh, to his servants, put a space between wave one and wave two and wave three. It's like um, if you've ever eaten at Five Guys, Five Guys Burgers and Fries, 
It's like what Five Guys does with their French fries. <clears throat> okay, so if, you, if you've eaten there before, you know that when you order the small, it doesn't matter what you order, the small fry, the medium fry, the, whatever you do, the, the, the small fry, it's a tiny little cup, but they fill the cup to overflowing and put it in a sack. So not only is the cup full, but the sack is halfway full. And they sell it to you and you think, oh, wow, I'm getting more than I bargained for, right? Well, they want you to think that, but it was their intention to give you that many fries all along. It's a staging principle to make you feel like you've gotten this you know, great bargain of french fries. And, and, and in a similar kind of tactic, Jacob's doing the same thing here. He's, he's sending one wave. He's not sending them all at the same time. He's sending a wave and then a, and then a breather. And then another, so, so, so that Esau will feel like it's wave upon wave upon wave. Upon, and maybe that'll dull his anger, right? <clears throat> that's, the, that's the strategy that Jacob has undertaken. And he hopes, you see this down in verse, verse 20, uh, that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. Perhaps he will accept me. <laughs> All of this is a prelude to what comes next. And what comes next seems like a strange interruption on the way to meeting Esau. But as we're about to see, Jacob needs to have a much more important meeting. And this is a meeting with God. So let me read, uh, picking up in verse 22, and we'll work our way through the wrestling match. The same night... He arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. We'll pause there for a moment. It's, I think it's important that it's, it's, it's being highlighted here that in this moment, Jacob is left all alone. No possession, no company, no family, no army can deliver him. This is intentional. Whatever he's, whatever he's undertaking, whatever this meeting is about, it has to happen on his own. And then, of course, we, we immediately wonder, as Jacob would have immediately wondered... Who is this man, right, who, 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 who comes by night and seizes him in this great wrestling match? Is it Esau, seeing that Jacob is alone, coming to settle the score? Who else could it be? I think, I think it's probable that this is, that, that's at least initially what Jacob would have assumed, Right? Verses 25 and 26, <clears throat> we get some more clues. When the man, that's the one wrestling Jacob, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, this is the man, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So we actually, we, we get a few more clues as to the identity of this man. Um, some of which, 
some of which make the clarity of the question, who is this, go way up. But one of them is kind of confusing, right? So um, consider, consider uh, the first thing we see in verse, in verse 25 is the man saw that he did not prevail, okay? Then we see in verse 25 that he dislocates Jacob's hip with a touch. And then we hear him say in verse 26, let me go for the day has broken. So consider those clues with me in reverse order. Okay, so the, so the last one first. Daylight is approaching. The, guy say, the man says, let me go for day has broken. Apparently Jacob cannot safely see this person's face in the full light of day. That contributes clarity, right? We're, we're like, we're, we're, as our needle is moving, who is this? That, that definitely moves it in a clearer direction. Also, the second clue gives us clarity, right? He dislocates Jacob's hip with a touch, and, 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 and all of a sudden there is the astonishing revelation that this person has been holding back. Clarity goes up. The one that is initially more curious and less clear is the comment that he saw that he did not prevail. Right? In light of the first two clues, we wouldn't expect the third one, <clears throat> at least initially. So as it dawns more and more to Jacob and to us who Jacob's opponent was, the question, the obvious question is, why wasn't this match over before it started? How is it possible that the one against whom Jacob was wrestling did not immediately prevail? That's an important question. Hang on to it for just a second, okay? Back in verse 26. <clears throat> Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, That's, this is the man, said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. That's more than just a little bizarre, right? <clears throat> not only is Jacob convinced now that he has been wrestling God, and not only did God hold back in the midst of this wrestling match, but in the end, after the hip dislocation, when you and I, if we were observers of this wrestling match, we would have said God won. God lifts Jacob's hand and declares him to be the victor. <clears throat> How is that? Well, it is clearly not a victory in Jacob's own strength, right? In his wisdom and kindness, God has condescended to grapple with Jacob in a manner that Jacob can endure. And it's not over in an instant. God allows the match, it should have been, but God allows the match to go on all night. Why? That's the, that, right? I mean, that's, that's like the, the prime curiosity question here. Why all night long? <clears throat> I think the answer is pretty important. 
God wants Jacob to experience being brought to the end of himself. He wants Jacob to experience spending every last bit of his might and his cunning. And when he's spent everything he's had, the best he could possibly claim is that it resulted in a draw. And then bam, just like that, hip dislocated, it's over. What does this help Jacob realize? It helps him to realize that I wrestled with all my might and I was never even close. I'm not who I thought I was. My resources are not enough. So Jacob did not win this match by looking inward and relying on himself. Uh, the, the minor prophet Hosea in Hosea chapter 12 has a comment on this wrestling match. Here's how Hosea puts it. <clears throat> he kind of summarizes Jacob's life. He says, this is Hosea 12 verses 3 and 4. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel, right? That's the angel of the Lord, and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So here's what we learned from Hosea. At the end of the match, when Jacob is reduced to clinging to God, and protesting that he will not let go without receiving a blessing, he is doing so in a crumpled, weeping, and seemingly defeated heap. Through his tears, Jacob can do nothing else but beg humbly for God's blessing. And that's precisely the point, isn't it? That's the point at which God moves in to complete surgery which results in Jacob's victory through his defeat. You ready to see this happen? Let's watch the great physician skillfully remove the last remaining remnants of Jacob's cancer of self-reliance. So Jake, after Jacob begs for blessing, God does not grant it immediately. What, you, you, did you notice what he did? The, the next thing he does is he asks for Jacob's name. He says, what's your name? <clears throat> it's kind of curious to us. Why does he do that? It's not because God doesn't know his name. But Jacob must confess it. See, in the ancient world, names were of tremendous significance in summarizing or revealing a person's character. We mentioned already this morning that when Jacob was born, he was born clutching at his brother Esau's heel, which foreshadows his life of clutching and grabbing at his brother's blessing and cheating both Esau and Laban. And, right? you, you, know, you know what his name means? You know what the name Jacob means? It, means? it means heel grabber or cheater. That's the meaning of his name. In chapter 27, Genesis chapter 27, after Esau and Isaac had learned they had been deceived by Jacob, Esau says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. Prior to that, in chapter 27, when Jacob goes in to deceive Isaac and pretends to be Esau, right? Isaac can't see. 
right? He pretends to be Esau so he can grab his brother's blessing. Isaac asks him, who are you? And twice Jacob says, I'm Esau, even blasphemously invoking God in support of his deception. He is cheating. So in God's mercy, at the point of Jacob's brokenness, God says, who are you? It's an opportunity for confession. Jacob cannot get God's blessing in the same way that he got Isaac's. He can't manipulate for it. He can't scheme for it. He can't take it by force. So in verse 27 of our passage, all Jacob says in response to the question is Jacob. Because there's nothing else that he can do. And when he says Jacob, he's not just stating his name. He's confessing his character. Through broken, humble tears, he answers the question, who am I? I'm cheater. I'm deceiver. That's who I am. That cunning is what I have relied on. And it's not enough. And just like that, tumor's out. See, the point of this wrestling match is not to break Jacob's hip, but it's to break the last remaining vestiges of his self-reliant pride. God has wounded Jacob in this wrestling match for his benefit. He exchanges Jacob's moral deformity for a physical one. And you know what? Jacob loves him for it. That's the point at which... <clears throat> God changes Jacob's name. No longer Jacob, Israel. What does that, sig that signify? That's not just, right? Again, in that context, it's not just changing a name. That's a new identity, he says. And he pronounces Jacob the victor. And he extends God's blessing to Jacob. It's the only blessing that matters, right? You're not cheater anymore, <clears throat> You're Israel. You're one who has contended with God and won by humble and dependent trust. The one who came out of the womb clutching at Esau's heel now clutches on the mercy of God. He's a new creation. And he is ready to reenter the land of promise as a man who is victorious because he has been defeated. Now what we, what we have to see here, right? What we cannot miss is that changing Jacob like this also requires that God win by losing, right? The man that Jacob wrestles, who we come to see in the passage is God, the angel of the Lord, what did he have to do? He had to restrain the full expression of his glory, even to allow Jacob to wrestle with him. He, God had to grant to Jacob what Jacob could otherwise never take for himself. And so in that match of restraint and loss, God wins Jacob's lasting and limping trust. And in that, we see a tremendous foreshadow of the cross, don't we? Now, <clears throat> to be clear, 
Jacob's race is not finished at this point, right? God's not done with him yet. Sanctification is a process, and Jacob has some lows yet to come in his life. But the point in Jacob's life, as with ours, if we're children of God, is that the one who can deliver Jacob from himself is the one who can get him all the way home. So verses 31 and 32. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So having met God and receiving his blessing, Jacob is ready to return to the land of promise and to meet Esau. We're also given a glimpse in these last couple of verses at how this episode in Jacob's life is meant It's meant to be not only definitive for him, but for the nation of Israel as a whole. It changes their eating customs. By extension, it's meant to be definitive for us as well. File this away for the next time you take the Lord's Supper together. Because the Lord Jesus lost so we could win, our eating customs are changed as well, aren't they? So so, so their custom of no longer eating the the sinew of the hip socket is a reminder of what God did so that Jacob could win by losing. The cross, of course, is the perfect reminder of what he did losing so that we could win, right? So that we could win by losing our self-reliant pride. And we eat in a way, on a regular basis, that reminds us of that. Well, what I want to do in the time we have remaining is to consider how Jacob's wrestling match shows us Christ. The principle of uh, slaying self-sufficiency to hope uh, in God's provision alone is true for all of God's people. It was true for Jacob. It was true for Moses, who was writing this account to the people of the wilderness generation prior to their own entry of the promised land. It goes back further than that. You remember when Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? God places a, uh, an angelic sentry, right, at the edge of the garden with a flaming sword, which indicates they can't come back in as they are. If they're coming back in, they have to be changed first. And the same is true for us entering the kingdom of God and ultimately the new Eden, Right? You can come in, but not as you are. We must be changed by God, like Jacob, before his presence is a blessing and not a curse to us. So in the fullness of time, Jesus had to climactically lose so that we could win. He humbled himself. Again, I mean, right? That, that's, a, that's a mash that should have been over in a second. If he, if, he, if he exercised even a modicum of self-protection, called on a legion of angels, to, right? But what did he do? He humbled himself <clears throat> to the point of death on a cross so that our faith, which otherwise has no intrinsic merit, could find a handhold on him. He allows us the handhold of faith. Had he not granted that, we'd have nothing to clutch to, and we could not win. 
Uh, as we've seen uh, in our passage in, in, with, with Jacob this morning, this, this kind of, of, of abandonment of self-reliance, which is difficult and yet necessary, often occurs when people are at the end of their rope experientially. That's often when it happens. Some of you may feel like you're there right now. So what I want to do, uh, lastly this morning, is to try to make application of our passage to three kinds of people who might be here with us today. Three, three groups of people, okay? Group number one. <clears throat> You've been there. You have met Jesus. Meeting him may have caused you to limp internally or externally. There's no pretending it isn't hard to follow Jesus sometimes. But because you have met him, even though you limp, you do so with a confidence that Jesus lost so you could win. And as a result, you experience a kind of hope that your own strength could never provide for you. If you're in this group, you're in really good company. Jacob, Moses, David, all experienced being humbled and broken like this. Remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He basically says, right, the thorn in the flesh, take this limp away. God says, no, my strength is perfected in weakness. Peter, I got this, Lord. The rest may fall away. I'll never fall away. You remember Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? It's got the line in there. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Misplaced, misplaced hope. Misplaced. But, 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 but remember, right? It's not just what Peter says to Jesus. It's what Jesus, Jesus says to Peter. He, he says, Peter, you, you don't got this. But I want to meet you on the other side. Because when this is done, you need to know that I've got you. I bet there are many people in this congregation that could give amazing testimony. Some of you have profound limps of one kind or another that come from following Jesus. And yet, you're thankful for how God has used that to produce in you humble, dependent, faithful trust in Jesus. And you should celebrate that. You should share, right? Before, you know, even before you leave today, if you haven't shared recently, share with someone how the Lord has brought you to depend on him, even if it costs you a limp. But this group, like Jacob, struggles at times. Just because you've turned to Jesus, it doesn't mean you're never tempted to doubt or waver. So if you're in this group, the charge to you this morning is keep clinging. It's very simple. You have clung to Christ. Keep clinging. Meditate again and again on how he lost for you. Remember <clears throat> how they mocked Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27. They said things like, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They didn't realize how true their statement was. If he would save you, he cannot save himself. 
So he didn't. He had the power to save himself, but if he exercised it, he can't save you. So he didn't. Meditating on that has so much fuel for persevering faith, doesn't it? Group two. <clears throat> Maybe <clears throat> you're at the end of your rope right now. You're in the thick of the wrestling match, so to speak. You are being stripped of your self-reliance, and it hurts. Maybe you're wondering, can this possibly be good? Is he friend? Is he foe? The kingdom that you have set up for yourself is crumbling. And maybe you're beginning to realize you're not who you thought you were. Maybe it feels like it's asking too much to require you to let go of what has always given you a sense of security. What should you do? Go to the cross where Jesus lost to give you himself. Hear him asking you, child, what's your name? As hard as it may be, the best and the most secure thing you can do is to tell him who you are outside of him. Not for his sake, he already knows. For your sake. Because that's how the tumor gets out. So confess it. Whatever it is. Tell him, I'm liar. I'm cheater. I'm deceiver. I'm a self-medicator. I'm an image manager. I'm a false intimacy junkie. I'm self-righteous. I'm a manipulator. I'm an insecure people pleaser. I'm a lover of money. I'm an idolater. I'm a sinner. And it's not enough. Please bless me. That kind of encounter will surely make you limp. It will require you to die to self. But if you do, you will rise with a new name, a new identity, and a far greater love. Last group, group three. Maybe you don't really know much about Jesus at all. Or possibly you know a lot about him, but haven't really encountered him in a way that makes your faith your own. Here I think of, of, uh, of people who grew up in Christian homes a lot of times. They've heard all kinds of things about Jesus, but they haven't made that a confession and embrace uh, personal. They haven't made it their own. Um, you, you, you can pray to meet him personally like that. Here's what you need to know. That meeting has to happen on your own between you and him. That's right. We saw Jacob, right? This happened in, when he was alone. And the reason it has to happen on your own doesn't mean that there aren't people encouraging you, supporting you, praying for you, right? The reason it has to happen on your own is because nobody else can lay down your self-reliance for you. People can encourage you to do that. They can exhort you to do that. They can pray for you to do that. But the only one who can lay down yours is you. <clears throat> Parents, as much as they want that for you, can't do it. Pastors, as much as they may want that for you, can't do it for you, even as they exhort you. Now, I realize that asking Jesus to meet you <clears throat> and make you humbly dependent on him can be a, can be a pretty scary thing, right? It's, it feels like losing control. 
When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, that's a fairly radical prayer, isn't it? That's a prayer of complete surrender. It's a prayer that your kingdom will be expanded and my kingdom will be shrunken. But the wisdom in that prayer is that your self-defined kingdom isn't enough. Neither is mine. But his is the one kingdom that will never expire. And Jesus wants you to know that when everything else disappoints, he is faithful. He's better than wherever else you've been getting your sufficiency and your sense of identity. If you have never done that before, you can do that today. There are an abundance of people here who would love to help you with that, myself included, after we close. For any of us, whether we've never met Jesus or we've been walking with him for some time now, but find ourselves at times tempted to fall back into old patterns, the questions are these. Who are we outside of Christ? And who are we in him? He offers us a victory that in many ways is quite strange, but wonderful. No matter which group you find yourself in this morning, cling to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you praise for the remarkable way in which you, fulfilling the foreshadow of Genesis chapter 32, allowed yourself to lose when none of us had an intrinsic claim that would make that necessary or possible so that we might win. Lord, help hum- humble us again at the, at the majesty of that sacrificial, steadfast love that we could never have done anything to deserve. I pray that you would be exalted, Lord, in our lives, in our thinking, in our meditation, in our prayer, maybe in our tears, as we grieve our limp, even as we are thankful that you've given us yourself in its stead. So, Lord, please encourage uh, the folks of First Baptist Hacienda Heights this morning in all the ways that you know are appropriate to them as individuals. Whatever group they may be in, Lord, would you apply the good news of this gospel to our lives? We ask it in Jesus' name.